Welcome to Off Message. I'm Isaac Devere. Today's guest, French Ambassador Gérard Arrault. Arrault has been the ambassador here in Washington since 2014. Before that, he spent five years at the UN. In today's Washington, where foreign leaders talk with the president directly, ambassadors aren't like they are in the movies, coming in to represent their government in the Oval Office, making the case. Arrault certainly isn't. He's never met Trump, and though he told me he spends a lot of time talking to people on the West Wing, like National Security Advisor H.R. McMaster, most of his job is like what most of the other ambassadors in Washington do, represent their country's interests in all sorts of ways around the country, fostering ties, and serving as the eyes and ears for their governments back home to try to understand what's going on in Washington and in American politics. Most other countries don't do ambassadors the way we do here, where presidents pick their friends and allies and big donors for the jobs. France doesn't. Aro started out at the UN as an ambassador under Nicolas Sarkozy, arrived in D.C. under François Hollande, and is now serving under the new president, Emmanuel Macron. That doesn't mean he's without his own views. They come out a lot, often on Twitter, and not always so diplomatically, like what he tweeted on election night. It's the end of the era of neoliberalism. We don't know what comes next. When I asked him what comes next, he started off by saying he regretted tweeting that that night, but that also he turned out to be right. The world is changing, adapting to the reaction coming up through democracies to how governments were approaching trade and international agreements and all sorts of policies that depend on open borders. It's pretty clear that Aro wishes it weren't changing that much. President Trump is off to the G20 for his third big international meeting of the year. He was at the G7 and NATO both in May. Then he'll turn around and head back to Europe, to France, where he'll go to the Bastille Day Parade on invitation from Macron, continuing to sketch out the strange relationship between the two of them that's been defined so far by the alpha male handshake they had a couple weeks ago and Macron taking uh, a make-the-world-great-again shot on Twitter at Trump when he pulled out of the Paris Climate Accord. You can read the article I wrote about the conversation on our website and how it fits into the dynamics that are going on in Washington and foreign policy. As you'll hear Aro point out, the changes in global dynamics aren't just about Trump. There's a larger shift in America going on that he traces under Obama, too. America essentially pulling back from leadership role in the world in a lot of ways, responding to where the electorate is. And Aro talked about what that's going to mean for how France and Europe responds to what's coming next. First, though, we'll talk with Annie Carney again, one of our White House reporters here at Politico, who was with Trump at the G20, and talk through what Europeans make of Trump, and whether the White House cares at all what they have to say, or about the angst that they're feeling, or anything else. Remember to subscribe and rate us on iTunes. Great episodes coming up, including Utah Senator Mike Lee on his new book about the Founding Fathers, what they'd make of Trump, and what they'd make of the process going on around the health care bill. Follow me on Twitter and on Facebook at Isaac Dover. And email me with your thoughts at Isaac at Politico.com. And now, before we get to Ambassador Aro, my conversation with Annie Carney. You've been to Europe twice since Trump was inaugurated, once when Ivanka Trump went to Germany on her goodwill tour there, and you were part of the trip when the president went in May. What is the view that you have seen from the Europeans of, of him and, and of what his realignment of American politics is meeting for them? Very, very negative in France. And that's not just the polling data. Well, no. I mean, well, first of all, the polling data, like, for instance, in France, he is less popular than he is here. I think his unfavorables are like 82%, I think I just saw. But this is also based on watching the reception Ivanka got in Berlin where she was booed, and it was 
the line when she tried to defend her father as being supportive of women that she got hissed and booed at. And they just really don't understand what it even means that like family members are the most senior people in this administration. They don't understand how government works like that. Um, I was on the whole foreign trip. And I mean, the contrast between how he was greeted in Saudi Arabia and Israel, where he's very popular, to how he was greeted by the European leaders was black and white. Um, So this is a part of the world where they see that Merkel is now the leader of the free world. And people in the Trump administration, like Bannon, have said that like they're opposed to the EU. So, and what is the White House response to those feelings? I mean, do they care about it? Do you find that they're talking about it at all, or that they're okay with it and uh, it's part of what goes on? Are they frustrated to see the Europeans say, "Okay, well, Merkel's the leader of the free world now." Um, well, I think that Bannon sort of likes it. Like he hates Merkel. He hates the European Union. So, to have that as a Nemesis is great for him. And they just have so much else going on domestically that it's just, I don't feel, I don't sense that it's um, high on the list of the biggest problems they have to deal with. He is about to go again to Europe. Uh, He'll be in Warsaw and then in Hamburg uh, for the G20. Do we have a sense of what he wants out of that trip? I mean, the big part of this trip that is he's going to meet with Putin on the sidelines of the G20. And I was just reading a story where our colleague Michael Crowley quoting H.R. McMaster, the National Security Advisor, saying he doesn't really have any agenda. He's just going to talk about whatever the president wants to talk about. And, like, Putin's going to show up with a very clear agenda of what he wants from the American president. And, like, what Trump is going to talk about, Joe and Mika and the facelift? Like, that's clearly what he wants to talk about. So, no, he doesn't have a clear agenda there. He'll he'll also have a bilateral uh, meeting with uh, Emmanuel Macron uh, and has accepted already to go back to Europe uh, for Bastille Day for the parade there. They have this sort of weird relationship. Macron, I remember, had the The alpha male handshake. And then when Trump uh, pulled out of the Paris Climate Accord, uh, Macron tweeted something about make the world great again. Right. He's obviously playing against Trump. Yes. What What is that? the view on that dynamic from the White House? Do they care about it? Um, you know, the funny thing is, I think Macron is like a young, handsome, central casting sort of looking politician, which is what Trump actually re- respects and likes. So it might help him actually like the guy a little bit. Also from a, a created his own political movement. Right. right. Yeah. Trump, you know, basically endorsed Le Pen. But then was gracious, and he did, like, congratulate Macron for winning the election. We'll see. Um, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> we'll see is the, yeah. uh, the constant in, in thinking yeah. about what Trump means for things. Uh, the ambassador spoke uh, about the way that he has had his interplay with the White House and tried to make the case that not a lot of it has been deeply affected by Trump becoming president, that uh, in terms of the National Security Council, which is where he has the most contact, that's the same. Does that sound credible to you when you hear that that's the the way that people are talking about it? I'm surprised to hear that just because, like, the blow-ups with the State Department have been some of the most intense, the clashes with Tillerson and with the White House and with it's not clear, do foreign leaders talk to Jared? Like, who's the point of contact? For instance, the reason Ivanka went to Germany was at the invitation of Merkel. At the time she went, there wasn't even a U.S. ambassador to Germany appointed. 
So it was a play of Merkel's. Like she's looking at the landscape of Trump advisors. She sees that like the daughter is apparently really important. She's thinking like maybe that can be my back channel to Trump. I need someone there that that I can deal with. Ivanka was seemingly her best bet. I think it also shows like it's not clear for a lot of world leaders who to go to over there. So in in all, the president went to the G7 meeting, he went to the NATO meeting, he was going to G- the G20 meeting. Uh, the Bastille Day invitation is, is something that is not part of the official calendar. Uh, no matter what, a president's going to go to the G7 and right. G20. But overall, it seems like the point of the Trump presidency so far when it comes to foreign policy is it's not really their main concern. I mean, I think the New York Times reported this, but he prefers when the foreign leaders come here. He likes it on his turf. He doesn't like to travel. It's not their main concern. It's America first re- regime here. Um, he's not going to, you know, he's not going to England, which is typically an early visit. That was canceled. He hasn't been to Canada, which is usually the right. like traditionally the first. But he clashed with the mayor of London. Yeah. So yeah, it's these people are secondary to him. Um, the ones he's really bonded with are not the European leaders. He bonded with um, Abe. Mm-hmm. Over golf, a little bit with the, the President Xi in China, and they had yeah. the, that dinner. Yeah, famously they were having yeah. dinner as he, the Syria strike was. He's close to Netanyahu, yep. who just really kissed up to him the whole time he was in Israel. He like loved the king of Saudi Arabia. The ambassador says to just bring it back to this point. He said not just with Trump, but overall. Uh, that America sort of pulls back now and we see France and Germany having to take the leading mm-hmm. role. And from the White House perspective, that also jives with America first? Yeah. From the White House perspective, I don't hear a lot of concern about Europe. I just don't. The Europeans are concerned <laughs> about Trump and the White House and the White House isn't concerned about uh, I mean, am I wrong? No, I think that, that that's a fair way of putting it. Uh, and it is one of the uh, the X factors now that gets thrown into everything that mm-hmm. happens. We'll see what happens when there is something that really requires an international uh, response, mm-hmm. if something like that Right, I mean, up. that's the constant of the coverage of Trump. It's like, for all the insanity, everything that's happening is self-created. There hasn't been an actual crisis that he's had to deal with on an international level. All right, well, we'll leave it on that note. Annie Carney, White House reporter for Politico. Thanks for joining us. Thanks. And now, Ambassador Aro. You've been in Washington now almost three years as the ambassador. Before that, you were uh, about five years in New York at the UN. Uh, it's not your only experience in, in America. You spent a lot of time here. How has your view of American politics and what America is evolved and changed uh, over that time, and uh, and has it been affected by what's going on and what happened in the election, what's been going on since? You know, usually when I was asked by, uh, by the French or by the Americans uh, to make a comparison between uh, French and American politics, usually I was, I was always starting by saying they are very different. And what is striking is that actually French or maybe beyond France, European and American politics are extremely comparable today um, in a sense that um, Western democracies, all the Western democracies, uh, we are facing the same rebellion of some of our voters. Um, In a sense, in France, like in the US, like in the UK with Brexit, um, you have a, a substantial part 
of the citizens who are saying that they are fed up with the elites, that they consider that the elites are not delivering for them, that they have tried the traditional parties, uh, so they want to, so, to try some, something else. And basically, somebody who is going to toss the table. And that's, that's a general statement about what's going on in the world, and, uh, and there's a lot of reason to believe that there, uh, there's some validity to that. But have you, has your sense of what American politics has changed? Has it surprised you? I was reading a, 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 an article, an interview with you from 2015, and you said, uh, I think the strength of this country, and it's talking about America, is its extraordinary unity. I think a lot of Americans feel like we're actually torn apart at this point uh, in many ways. Do you think that that's still true, that the unity is there? You know, it's, um, in a sense, in Europe, um, we have been facing this populist uh, wave, uh, this populist anger for, I think, in the case of France, more than a decade. And in the U.S., it was, uh, it was a, a, quite a surprise. Uh, if you look at the macroeconomics, um, the U.S. is a country in full employment. Um, you actually you are now in the longest uh, growth since the Second World War. Um, so everybody more or less was surprised by the success of the candidate, Republican candidate Donald Trump. So I was surprised also. Everybody was. I think. Uh, everybody. I, think, I think Donald Trump was surprised. <laughs> no, I think I think you're I I think you are not fair. I think uh, the candidate Donald Trump has actually understood that something was happening in the country. He felt it, and, and he was elected on that. Oh, no, I think he, you're right about that, that he, more than many politicians that uh, have been around in America, understood what was going on in the guts of, uh, of Americans and how to speak to it, uh, that he would, was able to win in the end. Off of, that's what I mean was a surprise to him. The reporting that I've done suggests that, uh, uh, and he seems to continue to... You know, uh, <laughs> On November the 8th, you know, at 6 p.m., we were calling uh, the uh, Hillary Clinton team and they were telling us that she was elected. <laughs> so I think it was quite a surprise for and everybody. Did, was there another conversation after that? No, because after that, we saw little by little, you know, what was happening on the ground. What was the relationship with, like, uh, with the, the Trump campaign like uh, over that time? If on, on election day, you were already in contact enough with the Clinton campaign? So it... Uh, Again, the, the difficulty was that uh, it was, he was really an outsider. Um, so really, as you know, a lot of people in this city, especially a lot of Republicans in this city, had signed a letter against the candidate Trump, you know, the, the, the so-called never-Trumpers. Um, so, so it was, in a sense, a bit more complicated than usual to, to get in touch with people who were really close to the, 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 the campaign. But I think we did it, and uh, and now with the administration, we have no more relationship with the Trump administration. I, I, I want to just dwell on election night for a little bit. You you tweet a lot, as I think anybody who knows anything mm -hmm. about you knows. Uh, and you tweeted some things on election night that said that it's the end of the era of neoliberalism. Mm -hmm. We don't know what's what comes next. Do you feel like you have more of an answer yet in the, the seven months since election day? What, has what happened uh, been what you thought it would be, the end of neoliberalism in that way? And have you seen anything about where we're going? Actually, I think this tweet was a mistake because it has created a war. <laughs> and, uh, but I think I was right, actually. I was wrong to, 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 to send it, but I think I was right in my analysis. It's the problem with Twitter. It sometimes you get onto it too quickly and exactly. say what you really mean. No, the, 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 actually, my trauma was, you know, Brexit first, um, June the 23rd. 
And I think I, I don't know any British friend who told me that Brexit could pass, and it passed. After that, there was the election in, the, in this country, and frankly, I, I never met anybody in Washington, D.C. who told me that uh, Donald Trump could be elected, and he was elected. So my conclusion in this, in this long night was that actually something uh, critical, something essential was happening in our societies, and that's something that actually I, like most of the people I knew, uh, was, didn't foresee. And that was, that was the reason of my, uh, of my reaction. And the second point was, obviously, uh, observing the campaign of Brexit, observing the campaign of the, the, the American campaign, you saw this rebellion of the people against globalization. You know, now people say it's not only globalization, it's also automation, but it's obviously... Uh, a lot of our citizens uh, are telling us, have, have told us, are telling us that they have suffered from globalization, and that's. Uh, and we were, we are, we were after twenty or thirty years of neoliberalism, which means opening of the borders, free trade, and and basically our citizens say enough is enough with that. So that's the reason why my conclusion was that because we are democracies, we are obliged to respond to the concerns of our citizens that the uh, era of neoliberalism was coming to, to an end. And it's still coming to an end in what you've seen since. I think that we have to, to look, and I think the question is now, um, how, as I've said, how to respond to the concerns of these voters? Because, um, speaking of France, if uh, President Macron is not successful in this way, well, the next election, the far right or the far left, will, will win. So it's, it's critical. Uh, to listen to these people. So the, the notion, for instance, of fair trade, you know, which is supported by the Trump administration, I think it, uh, there is something behind it, you know, really. Um, because you can argue, say, okay, some parts of the country will suffer, but globally the economy uh, uh, really will benefit from, from, from an agreement. But unfortunately, behind this globally, uh, you have the success of, uh, of, of some, but you have also the sufferings of others. And I think we have reached a point where it's not possible anymore. So what does it mean, fair trade? Um, in terms of environmental or social um, rules, for, 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 for instance. So I'm, I don't say that uh, free trade is over, but it's certainly uh, that I think that we will have to correct it, uh, to correct it, to take into account uh, our citizens, what our citizens have told us. You're here, you're, uh, you've been the ambassador uh, in these months since uh, the pre President Trump won. How has diplomacy changed in Washington in the Trump administration, under the Trump administration? Um, what, is, what is different about things these days? Well, first, uh, there is the, the, usual, uh, the usual period of the transition. People forget that in this country, a transition, it's a, it's, a, it's a bit a long and grueling and a bit chaotic process because any president who has been elected has to appoint hundreds of, of civil servants. And also in a system where, which I, actually it's, it's an advantage of the American system because you can elect somebody who has not been around in politics for 30 years, who doesn't have an experience. So it takes some time to, to stabilize. Yeah, I uh, think Americans situation. are always uh, struck when there's a French election, how quickly you go from 
the, the polls closing and the winner being announced and then that person's president three days later. <laughs> exactly. So that's, uh, that's uh, yes, that's an advantage. But nevertheless, we have also our problems of, of a transition. So really, we are in the, in the middle of this, of this transition. Uh, so we have to get acquainted to new people. We have to wait for the appointment of, 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 of new people. But for instance, looking at the National Security Council, um, which is really the, close, uh, really the close team of the president, we have a very good relationship uh, with the National Security Council and their General McMaster. Um, the, the new National Security Advisor of President Macron was here in town two days ago, you know, really, uh, and he had been appointed only uh, 10, day, 10 days ago, and he, he spent uh, three hours with General McMaster. Because the reality is that we are together, the American and the French, on, on, on the battlefields. Unfortunately, again, we are shoulder to shoulder fighting the terrorists uh, either in Africa or, uh, or in Syria, in the, in the Levant. In a sense, uh, we are obliged, unfortunately, by the facts, we are obliged to cooperate and, and we are cooperating. Is it, there is the sense that, uh, that the administration is keeping a distance from foreign allies. Have you found that in any way? No, I don't think so, because as you know, uh, really the, the president, um, uh, Trump, was on the phone with, uh, with, his, with his colleague as soon as he was elected. He made a, really, uh, he made a, a big trip, you know, and, uh, and this trip led him to, to Europe. And when he was in Europe, you know, he had a, a lunch with President Macron and he met the people, uh, the, he met the, the NATO leaders, the NATO, the leaders of the G7, and it will be on uh, the first days of July, it will be back in Europe for, for the G20. Uh, so, no, I, I, I think, you know, frankly, whatever people are, are saying, um, it's impossible for the U.S. simply uh, to leave the world, you know, really. And, uh, and I think this administration, of course, is trying to define a, a new policy, but this administration knows that uh, the U.S. is an essential part of the world order. But you haven't seen any change? It's interesting. What you just sketched out is as if uh, things are proceeding as they were under the Obama administration. Uh, is that really how it is? There's nothing that's different? Well, again, I think in the way the things are processed, it's, it's different because, the, uh, as I have said, we are in the middle of a transition. And uh, after a while, we were in a, with a democratic administration, which has been around for eight years. So it's quite different. You have also the personality of the right. president. The personalities are quite uh, are quite different. So I really, uh, it's it's obvious that really there are different uh, different aspects. But at the same time, uh, these these administrations I'm talking in terms of foreign policy, uh, they are really basically facing the same challenges. Sure. And they are facing the same challenges on the basis also of the same feelings of the American uh, public opinion. Uh, I give you the example of Syria. Uh, there is uh, a, no appetite for uh, for the American public opinion uh, to get uh, to get the United States deeply involved in the Syrian uh, civil war, and and frankly, when you look at the policy followed by the Obama administration and the Trump administration, there are differences, but they are not really strategic differences. Basically, uh, the plan which is uh, followed by the by the, the U.S. forces against the terrorists is more or less the plan which had been uh, elaborated under the Obama administration. So you haven't seen any impact from America First or, uh, or, or that shift? And Actually, the America First uh, paradigm 
and um, maybe maybe you know will be felt on the trade uh, the trade issues you know really but uh, so far for the Europeans we have not yet felt a difference but we are following it you know really the question basically whether there will be a more protectionist America compared to uh, the previous administration. Uh, you know, there will be the renegotiation of NAFTA with Canada and Mexico. And, uh, and there are some now some rumors that on steel, uh, the, the, the administration may take some measures. So it really, we are exp- waiting for that and to see whether there will be consequences, uh, consequences for, for, for your hope. Have you met President Trump? No. Is that unusual to... No, uh, no. The, the ambassadors don't meet the ambassadors. You know, the only time that the ambassadors are meeting the president is usually when they present their credentials, right. which is quite a ceremonial, uh, really ceremonial opportunity. And, and sometimes when there, there's a... It seems like when things go wrong, right? You, there, there was a moment. You went to see President Obama after the, the yeah, attacks, right? That and, was and, very, and, very particular. When right. the president came to the... To, after the, a terrorist attack, when the first one actually, and he came to this embassy... Yeah. And, Really, which was, of course, a very uh, w- really we were moved by this uh, by this by his coming, and I had the opportunity to discuss the issue of uh, Islamic terrorism with him at the moment. You talked to, about the difference in personality, uh, which is obvious uh, there uh, between uh, Barack Obama and Donald Trump. What do you make of uh, of Donald Trump? How do you explain him to? Uh, the, the your uh, colleagues in the French government, uh, th- those who are in France and uh, not seeing day to day the way that he uh, is as president. What's your assessment of him that you give them? Oh, you know, really, that's, <laughs> I, I am an ambassador. Really, so it's <laughs> really it's a, it's a bit, see how uh, diplomatic you're going to be. <laughs> I, I really and uh, I try to you know again uh, the personality of Barack Obama was also very particular. Yep. So it's really it was uh, and uh, you have uh, this uh, you know this new president. Uh, so first, he's new. So really, so there is a problem of experience. Uh, is uh, you know, I think that uh, the President Trump, you know, will have also to define himself as President of the United States. It's something which is which is quite incredible, you know, really. And uh, the same thing for Emmanuel Macron. Uh, you were, and maybe more for for Donald Trump, who has never been uh, in politics. You know, going from being a businessman in New York City to become the president of the first world power. So it's really. You need, uh, I think, a learning curve, and I think the president is in in his learning curve. Um, so that's what I I try to I try to 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 convey to Paris. I try to convey to Paris before the meeting between our uh, our our two president. But and I I, I told uh, also my president that really uh, uh, Donald Trump was quite direct, and mm-hmm. so that the president uh, really should express the French president should express himself the same way. I think it went well. Actually, they, they were on the phone now two or three times, and, and there was this lunch, and I think things, things went well. Do you, uh, you talked about how well the relationship is going and, and understanding the connections that maybe you didn't understand before between French and American politics. What is the government's view, uh, and not just the government's view, on Donald Trump and on uh, what is happening in America. You talked about your own view on it. And I'm wondering if you can help us see the way this looks from France. In in America, we hear a lot about how people in Europe are uh, not sure of where America is and and anxious about what's going on. 
Is that an accurate reflection of it, or do you think that Europeans maybe should calm down about uh, the anxieties that we are hearing uh, expressed? Well, I, again, I think <laughs> that every eight years there is the really uh, there is this uh, strange period where the the rest of the world is trying to figure out who is uh, and what who is the new the, the American president. In a sense, yeah, someday I was I was joking saying that. An American president is so important that actually he should be elected by the world, and uh, that we should have a say in the name of the American president. So again, we. I feel we, like uh, uh, Europeans often feel that way about presidential elections. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yes, really, we feel this way. So again, we have a new president, and in a, it's, in a sense, it's also uh, a bit unusual because again, he has never been around in politics. He has a really is a, is, is a business, businessman with a very strong personality and. Is expressing him in a very direct way. So really, so again, we have to. What I try to to tell Paris, uh, and what I try to explain to my uh, to the French is that beyond the words, what matters will be the politics. So uh, what will be the, the American American policy towards Syria, towards Russia, towards North Korea? That's what matters. And when you are looking at it, uh, as I have said, it's not that different. You know, there is nothing really critical. As, as, as really happened. But on one issue, uh, which is very emotional in Europe, uh, which is the climate change. Mm -hmm. it's, it's, it's obvious that um, that's a very um, tough challenge for us uh, because, as you know, the, the Europeans are very much committed to fighting climate change. And it happens that this agreement had been negotiated in Paris. So obviously, uh, we were dismayed uh, by the American decision to to um, to leave the, the to denounce the Paris Agreement, but what what we want to do in a sense beyond because we know there are domestic politics in every country and uh, in this country uh, on climate change. Uh, climate change is a sort of ideological battle, a religious battle. So it's uh, basically what is what matters beyond this politics is the the American society, which actually is very committed to fighting climate change. You know, the states, uh, but also the cities, the major corporations, you know, really are engaged. And I think, you know, Michael Bloomberg, you know, really said publicly recently that whatever um, Washington is deciding, actually the Americans are going to abide by the commitments uh, made towards uh, towards Paris. Do you think it sends a bigger signal, though? That was one of the uh, criticisms that we heard of President Trump when he made the announcement about the Paris Accord, is that it uh, it showed America stepping away from the leadership of the world in, uh, in a significant way, and that that message would be received uh, by the world, by uh, countries in Europe, by China, by everybody, as a real difference in how America's uh, role fits into what's going on? Or well, is that overreaction? The, the, the question is on the table. And actually, by you were referring to America first. What is the meaning of America first? Um, you, you really, again, you, you remember of the speech, the inauguration day by the president. And there was this, um, I think, uh, paper uh, document written um, uh, by McMaster, General McMaster and Gary Cohn, so the question is there. Where, what, what will be the, 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 the policy of the United States versus the world order at a time where, when this world order, uh, the traditional liberal order, is more or less uh, undermined, uh, really, or uh, uh, looks endangered? So uh, where are the United States? And that's, that's a question which is on the table. And again, as I've said, we, are, uh, we, we need to expect 
the development of, uh, of a real uh, foreign policy of the new administration, we are still in a, in a transition. And it's true that uh, denouncing the climate change agreement, the Paris Agreement was sending a bad signal in, the, in this sense. Does the world move on without America then? I think it's impossible to move on without the America. And I, I think also that the, Ameri uh, the United States really can't let the world move on. You know, the interests of the U.S. are so diverse and worldwide diverse that the U.S. can't afford simply uh, leaving the world. When uh, the president announced the decision about uh, the Paris Accord, one of the things that he said was uh, that when the negotiations were happening, uh, he said it several times, so I'm paraphrasing the way that he said it, that, that people were laughing at America for agreeing to these conditions. W were people laughing at America? Of course, no, and especially because most of the conditions which were referred in the speech of the president were actually conditions set by the Americans themselves. You know, the Paris Agreement is a framework agreement where all the countries, and that was the important message, you have for the first time in our history 192 countries, but also behind the countries, hundreds of cities, of corporations, saying we are serious about fighting climate change. And after that, each country, because of course we had to respect the sovereignty of the U.S., sure. like respect the sovereignty of China, each country is, was making its national commitment, saying, okay, I will reduce by 25%. I will do that, that, and that. And the Obama administration has presented an American commitment. So in a sense, if the, the U.S. were not satisfied by their own commitment, uh, they could actually change it. Right. But uh, they, there was no need, uh, no practical need to get out of the agreement. As I've said, it's a framework agreement. It's not binding. It was more, uh, and that was the importance of that, it was more a, a political commitment of everybody saying, OK, we, something is happening with the climate change and we want to fight it together. But of course, each country was going to do it on the basis of its own constraints, its own economy, its own political, uh, political life. So what I've tried to, to, to tell the administration and the, the, on the Hill also was change your national commitments. If you believe that President Obama was too ambitious, but you don't need to get out of the, uh, the Paris Agreement. Do you think that people are laughing at the United States because of that decision, or what is the response to you're, it? You're, you're never it, laughing at the United States. No, it's really more, I think, sadness. You know, really, um, we are in a paradoxical situation now when, where, where, when China is lecturing, uh, uh, you know, the U.S. about uh, the world order and saying we will be uh, uh, exemplary in fighting climate change ourselves. Uh, uh, it's obvious that for the Europeans, Europeans can't think of building a future without the Americans. You know, really, we are belonging to the same civilization. And the responses on the Paris decision were where this came up the most, uh, both in some of the comments uh, from other world leaders, and there were uh, political cartoons that we saw where it was... Uh, you talk about uh, being at the table, and there was one, I think it was in an Australian paper, of uh, there was a high chair for, for President Trump, uh, that he was uh, being portrayed as a, a baby or a laughingstock for some. Um, is that just, that's not the general mood that you perceive in the international community? No, as for the, the international community in the sense of the leaders, uh, you know, really, um, of course, we have domestic politics too. And, uh, and as I've said, uh, uh, the, the, the issue of climate change is also uh, very uh, emotional um, in our public opinion. 
So we were, my, the French leaders or the French president, but also the European leaders had also to react to show that they were disappointed by, by the American decision. But what is very important, I, I, and I do hope that we succeed on both sides, is to avoid this issue as, sort of fester, as a festering issue in our bilateral relationship. So I, I, I really do hope that with the time, uh, we find a way of working on climate change together and avoiding this issue coming Is back possible, and back. Is that possible, though? I mean, it, it, it seems like given the investment that uh, so many countries had in the Paris Accords, given the frustration about President Trump pulling out of it and, and uh, that he has made no moves, it seems, to start the negotiations or renegotiations that he said he might be interested in. Is it actually possible to get past that, that decision? You know, and uh, again, uh, when you look, uh, I will be maybe, I, I will surprise you, but when you look at the, the decision uh, announced by President Trump, you can argue, and some people in the administration, you are arguing reverse, you know, really, uh, uh, that actually this decision was the minimal decision which, should, uh, which had to be taken. Considering the promises made during the electoral campaign, considering the atmospherics in the Republican Party, um, it had uh, really something had to be announced. But the fact is that, um, you know, there could have been much worse decisions, actually. The fact is that the U.S. are or still are still in the Paris Agreement. Because as you know, announcing the withdrawal, it takes three years in a legal, in a legal sense, you know, really. And, uh, and also the fact that really the, the issue, the president say renegotiation or new negotiation uh, really uh, is presented by the administration as an opening. And, and they tell us we don't, we don't have to renegotiate uh, the agreement itself, but to renegotiate uh, the part of the U.S., uh, uh, you know, the, the part of the, of, of the U.S., so, um, and, and the U.S. are withdrawing from the green fund, but not from the other environmental funds. So again, um, half empty, half full, uh, that's the usual, uh, the, usual, the usual game. Considering the politics uh, on both sides of the Atlantic, people are saying full or empty. Uh, I guess that the, the work of the, uh, the ambassador uh, is to try to go back to the, the, the half full, half empty, uh, and and really saying, trying to say, okay, politics, well, but let's look at the substance. What can we do? Uh, let's work together, you know, really. Uh, Emmanuel Macron, uh, when he had his first meeting with the president, there was a somewhat famous handshake that they had and that uh, uh, he would not let go of President Trump's hand. Uh, it seemed like a very alpha male moment. And he said afterwards that that was on purpose, that he didn't want to give uh, an inch in in the time since then, it seems uh, President Trump had got his attention because it, it, we know from reporting that it was maybe not the thing driving the decision that he made about the Paris Accords, but it was somewhere in his mind. Can you speak a little bit for the the president, for President Macron? Has his sense of President Trump been changing? Has he been reassessing how to uh, how to grapple with uh, with President Trump? No, again, uh, the the the. The question that any uh, Western um, uh, European uh, leader uh, has to answer to is, uh, again, what are we going to do if the U.S. are withdrawing from the world order? Really, uh, the first one to raise the issue was Chancellor Merkel. 
And, uh, and uh, you know, today, uh, President Macron has offered an interview to eight newspapers in Europe. And uh, basically, the question is, we have to be ready. Of course, our strong preference is to work with the U.S. Uh, really, as I've said, we have so many common interests and, so, and, and shared values. Uh, but uh, if, in some occasions, uh, the, the U.S. decide uh, for their own reasons and uh, not to intervene or not to do, we, we should be ready. And I want to go beyond um, really uh, this question of President Trump uh, to, to emphasize that the, the question of America first, in a sense, was raised in a discreet way also under President Obama. You know, look at the Ukraine crisis, which, you know, really, uh, do you know another crisis uh, since 1945, a major crisis, invasion of a country, and where actually the U.S. had a very minimal involvement and let France and Germany negotiate with Russia uh, and between, uh, between the, being the go-between between Russia and Ukraine. Look at Syria. You know, nearly half a million of dead, all the, the region destabilized, and now the destabilization spreading over to Europe. And, and the U.S. administration, the Obama administration, decided really that not to intervene. So, so in a sense, I, I do believe that it's more interesting to, to ask the question about America itself, not the America of Trump or the America of, of Obama, but what is today the appetite of the Americans uh, really uh, to have an active role in the world, uh, the world affairs, and, and which sort of role? You know, obviously, after the, 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 the military adventures, uh, especially the Iraqi one, which was an unmitigated disaster, uh, there is a, a sort of fatigue, you know, really uh, among the Americans towards this uh, military intervention. So it's in a very logical way. After too much intervention, maybe we go to not, not enough. But there is a debate in this country, and it, and it goes beyond uh, President Trump. And it, and it seems your perspective is that that would probably be true whether President Trump is president for three and a half more years or seven and a half more years or someone else is president. Because I think you're right that with President Obama, he very purposely left the Ukraine issue for Merkel to take the lead on and uh, receive criticism for that and other things along the way for not having an American leadership role. It does seem like in practice a lot of what President Trump might do uh, could be similar to, could get to the same conclusions about action, uh, even if the principle behind them is different. Exactly. No. Uh, and and so then who... Uh, who is the leader of the free world if America is not? Well, I think that first uh, we have to define what is the free world. And uh, today, uh, there is no the, the expression of leader. I think it doesn't uh, really doesn't fit um, the question. And uh, you know, uh, is for 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 Emmanuel Macron uh, is really to try to uh, to give a new impetus to the European Union. The European Union has been struck, you know, hit very, very painfully by the economic crisis that you have generously exported to us. <laughs> and uh, so all the European uh, endeavor is endangered. The Eurozone also was not ready. Um, so, uh, so, as you know, here, when you look at the populism, is, uh, its targets are Wall Street and Washington, D.C. In Europe, it's largely Brussels. And... Uh, uh, so uh, one of the response, the, the, the response that we have to bring to the to the voters 
uh, is uh, the future of the European Union. Can we reform the European Union? Can we give a new momentum to the European Union so that it appears not as a sort of neoliberal uh, channel, uh, but as protecting the citizens, protecting socially, economically, but also protecting in terms of uh, protecting the borders, which means also in terms of security. And that's what, what you will try to do after the German elections, because the, the Germans have their general election in October, so nothing is possible right now. So after the, the, the German elections, and, and also on the French side, after Macron, the President Macron has succeeded to reform the French economy, which is also, of course, very important, because you can't ask something if you have not done your own work. All right, Ambassador, thanks for taking the time. Thank you very much. That was Gerard Aro, the French ambassador. Thanks to our producer, Bridget Mulcahy, and our intern, Rachel Cusick. You can check out the article I wrote about Aro and how he fits into what's happening in Washington and foreign policy up on our website, politico.com. Remember to subscribe and rate us on iTunes so you can hear that conversation with Mike Lee and much, much more like comedian Maz Brani on the immigrant experience and comedy in the age of Trump. Great lineup coming up over the next few weeks. But as always, email me at isaac at about who else you'd like to hear.